Yes. Making a reveal. Making a reveal. Episode 85 of Rank and Review, and I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And this episode, my friend Eric Jurgens and I are going to discuss six films on the subject of historic horror. And we haven't talked about historic horror since episode one, so the nostalgia train just keeps on running. As usual, when you're listening to Rank and Review, you can expect spoilers. For the movies being discussed and you can also expect coarse language please seek out the show on itunes seek it out on facebook and check out the website at rankandreview.ca and if you have any feedback for me i would welcome it you can send me anything that you have in your brain at rankandreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com now let's get historic Okay, so here we are sitting down for the 85th episode of Rankin Review with my returning guest, Eric Jurgens. Uh, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, is mostly here. <laughs> I'm pretty awake. I got some tea going. I'm brewing it up. But uh, thank you so much for coming back. Not a problem. Uh, you selected this list, Historic Horrors, and this is the second episode that we're doing Historic Horrors, the first one being episode number one. Um, so I'm curious... Uh, was there a title in the list that jumped out? Was there a reason that you selected this theme? What was it that made you choose this bunch of movies? It was, I'll be honest, I recognize, like, two of the covers uh, have actors that I recognize, and then the other movie was Crimson Peak. Right. And there was kind of, like, this one, two, three in my brain. of like, oh, Kurt Russell, Lena Headey, Crimson Peak. All right, um, this is, like, one. familiar and interesting enough for me to kind of lock onto now that the other, there was a couple other uh, things in the list you gave me where I was like, ooh, I'd almost do that. But I kind of, I wanted to do a more traditional rank and review episode after our Batman, yeah, Spider-Man after, debate. Yeah. Exactly. And on top of that, like I said, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, this, this feels comfortable and good. Okay. So you hadn't seen most of the movies then? I'd only seen two of them. Yeah, that's, that's a true fact. Only okay. two of them. Well, that's nice. So this will be sort of a fresh start for you. Usually when you're looking with all these disparate movies, and I tried to sort of mix them up as far as budget and period of time, yeah. um, you don't know what you're going to get. It's it's kind of like a surprise bag, but I think it's more fun in the podcast if you come in blind. Uh, hopefully you're not going to walk away angry with me. I think overall, we've got a good list here. <laughs> overall. Overall, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Is there anything specific about doing genre horror movies that are sp- 
set to a specific time period? Is there like your dream horror movie? Do you need that zombie western or do you want the mountains of madness to be made? I feel like the best zombie western's already been made in the form of a game called Red Dead Undead <laughs> Nightmare. But uh, right? no, um, I think the other thing about historic horror is that whenever you double up on genres, you kind of have two things to latch onto. I'm actually historically... <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I'm actually not really a huge horror fan just because, in general, I find for all, like, the good either masterpieces or classics, like the Dawn of the Deads or the Friday the 13th, you get a lot of movies that think they're going to be those and try too hard, and that's been kind of my experience with horrors in the past is, like, just, you know, a try-hard genre, I I guess is what I call it, or it gets very generic very quickly. Whereas with historic horror, you, even that little bit of like spice to the recipe of also we need to make it a historic movie, right. it can't just be scary, is enough to, I think, breed some creativity. Well, my knee-jerk reaction, and this is funny coming from somebody who loves movies as much as I do, is that I think most genres are flooded with mediocrity, but for some reason horror gets called out on it. But if I'm honest, for every really great comedy I see... There's a bunch that make me roll my eyes, right? For every truly great romantic comedy, there's a bunch <laughs> that I, I both just... both truly great romantic comedies, there's all the both, other ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to find one idea. Um, generally speaking, you know, yeah. There's a million action movies, but there's a handful of really, really good ones. Yeah, the good ones kind of bubble to the top, whereas with horror... I, yeah, you're right. I don't know what it is, but it feels like... For some reason, they they present themselves as, or maybe not they present themselves, but the zeitgeist is such that they're more a dime a dozen than other uh, other genres. Even though we're going through comic book fatigue right yeah. now, but <laughs> but there's like the horror genre does have a little bit of stink on it still. I mean, it's it's not typically horror movies don't win Oscars, and typically horror movies that want to tell stories in these sort of periods of a real uphill battle. I've mentioned on the podcast before, Guillermo del Toro, who we're going to talk about, has been trying to make The Mountains of Madness, this H.P. Lovecraft movie, for years and years and years. And you would think, like at one point they had Tom Cruise attached, they were going to use uh, the production team that James Cameron used for the Avatar technology to render these Cthulhu creatures, these Lovecraftian monsters. They should have got the Davy Jones people from... uh... Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, who, who, anybody, anybody that needs Yeah, they, they had Cruise attached is, is the point. James Cameron, Tom Cruise, and, and uh, Guillermo del Toro could not get that movie made. And if those three guys can't get a historic horror movie made with a hard R for a Main Street audience, it's like, well, who the fuck can, right? <laughs> so a lot of the movies we're going to talk about today are low budget. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. And... I will sort of confess my personal bias that I will cheer for a, a production that is that ambitious. I know firsthand how difficult it is to make a low-budget movie. And short of doing science fiction, doing a historic piece, like every single piece of frame in your film will have to be augmented and have to be, you know, in some way adapted to the period. And if you don't do it convincingly for every shot, the entire illusion falls apart. So, uphill battle with the historic setting, uphill battle with the genre itself, I have a soft spot for these movies. Um, so, again, I might, they might start a little bit ahead of the, the line uh, for me, but 
I look forward to talking about them. Uh, is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction before I talk about these movies and we review the Sons of Bitches? I'm, I'm ready to jump in. Let's do it. Um, the movies that we are going to review, in some kind of order, we haven't decided yet. We have uh, Crimson Peak from Guillermo del Toro. We have a really brutal western starring Kurt Russell called Bone Tomahawk. Lena Headey stars in The Black Plague. We have one of the oldest known stories in written language in Beowulf and Grendel. Uh, we have Death Watch, uh, one of the very few movies that is set during World War One. We see a lot of movies set during World War Two, almost none during World War One. And then we have a New Zealand film called The Devil's Rock. Set in World War Two. Set in World War Two. Speak of the devil with some Nazis uh, experimenting with satanic shenanigans. Uh, one, two, three, go. Let's do it. There are parts of the house that are unsafe. What was that? A house as old as this one becomes, in time, a living thing. Never go below this level. It starts holding on to things. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. In your own best interest, proceed with caution. Keeping them alive when they shouldn't be. If you're here with me, give me a signal. She knows everything. Do we have to do this? Must we? Yes. You have no idea what they do. What do you want? So, uh, our mutual acquaintance, Ashley, and I reviewed Pan's Labyrinth the first time she was on the show. And we both pretty much gushed about it. I might have liked it slightly more than she did, because somehow it didn't make the top of her list. Hey... <laughs> Pobody's nerfed, so I have um, to go give her heck about that one. <laughs> exactly, um, but I am a fan of this director, and uh, I've reviewed a lot of classic form ghost stories, which one could argue this definitely is. But I think when I come into a movie with a director that I love, particularly, I, I think. In a way, it works both for and against the movie. It works for the movie in that I'm really excited and I want to see this new Del Toro joint. But it works against me in that I have a certain level of expectation. When I reviewed Pacific Rim, which was the movie he directed previous to this, I was basically like, it was pretty good, I guess. But I mean, from Guillermo? <laughs> Guillermo, I, I set the bar a little bit higher. And... Not as extremely as I did with Pacific Rim. I kind of have a similar reaction to Crimson Peak. Um, so I will put I will put that to you. We should cover the, the plot at some point, but broad strokes. Uh, I think where you did. Yeah, they're ghosts. Yeah, there, there's ghosts. Yes. Um, broad strokes. You've almost echoed my feelings entirely. I'm a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth. It's not a movie that I can watch every weekend for obvious reasons. It's a it's a it's, it's heavy. Of yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, and then for uh, Rock'em Sock'em Robots versus Godzilla's, I. Uh, 
I enjoy that movie. I don't have anything particularly against it, but it's not like a lot of my friends are. They'll treat it like it's the John Wick of uh, yeah. of, of action movies, and it's it's not. John Wick is the John Wick of action movies. It's a solid film. It doesn't necessarily get me excited. I had a lot of expectations for Crimson Peak. Maybe not high expectations, but a lot of them because actually, I played the, I guess, precursor to Crimson Peak, which was a demo of a game called P.T. that Guillermo del Toro made with uh, video game auteur Hideo Kojima. And it, what it was was this, like, hour-long horror game, uh, which was a kind of trailer. It literally stands for playable trailer for a Silent Hill game that they were both working on, uh-huh. which got crushed when Konami decided that it would rather make money than games. Uh-huh. Um, it was very sad. I was excited for Silent Hills, as it was to be titled. But PT is one of the most fantastic pieces of media I've consumed. It like really plays with the medium and the style and the horror genre in a game in a way that I haven't seen before. So when I heard that Guillermo del Toro was taking out his creative, uh, maybe frustrations out and making a movie, I was like, yes, PT the movie. Yeah. And uh, Crimson it's Peak not is not that. that. Uh, it's... Um, I guess, yeah, let's go over the plot of it. Um, a very romantic framework, typically, said uh, Mia Wasikowski, I think that's how you say that name. I'll trust you before I'll trust me trying to say she, it. She played Alice in the nouveau version of Alice in Wonderland, the Tim mm-hmm. Burton one. Uh, I thought she was fine there. I think that she might be a little bit outclassed by some of the people around her in this movie. And that's not to say that she sucks, but I think Jessica Chastain is probably gives the performance of the movie for me. As far as, you know, her strong, sustained sort of menace. You know there's something up with her before anything, the worm turns with her. Like, yeah. It's not necessarily a mustache-twirling villain type of person. If she had a mustache, she'd probably twirl yeah. it. <laughs> but you can definitely tell that she's unhappy a lot of the time. And she doesn't, she doesn't of, hide it well. None of her smiles feel like they're happy. Yeah. Is how she it? has no poker face. No. And she doesn't seem to care that she doesn't have a poker face. And that kind of works against it, because her and her uh, brother, slash lover, as we find out later, <gasps> uh, played by Loki, yep. <laughs> from uh, Marvel. What's his name, right? Loki? Yeah, Loki. <laughs> I just blanked on the dude's name. Tom Hiddleston. Hiddleston, thank you. Um, in order to maintain their bizarre lifestyle, they have got their hands pretty bloody. Chastain, most specifically, with the murder of their the matriarch of the family. But both of them have been luring, you know, young, wealthy, inheritance people to their place to kill them and take their money, essentially. Yeah. Well, and the, Mia Wasikowska is sort of the next up in that line. Yeah, this, the key step is uh, Loki Hiddleston marries them, and then they die, they and die, then he gets he their money. their wealth. Yeah, and they've done that a suspicious amount of times, so and no one's wondered what's up. They also go quite far abroad to accomplish this. They own uh, the titular Crimson Peak way out in the UK, and in the beginning of this movie actually takes place in... Uh, New York. Um, yeah, somewhere... New timey, or sorry, not new timey, old timey, uh, yeah. America. <laughs> um, I, yeah, going back to what we were saying before, this movie kind of feels flat to me. Uh, there a lot of like, not in a actively negative way, but just not in an exciting way. Um, it's weird having Tom Hiddleston in a movie and him not being the charismatic one. <laughs> um, 
I think he's playing it is that he's got this crisis of conscience. But the problem with me is that in the script, it's too late. He's already irredeemable. Uh, by the time we meet him, he's irredeemable. And the thing that redeems him is that this time he actually loves the girl, so he can't go through with it. And here's my issue is, like, like I I feel like, yeah, they were playing, like, in the same way that uh, the sister is kind of uh, foreshadowed. Yeah, she's evil. Uh, it sets up this, oh, he's a conflicted character, and this time he's falling for it. Except that while watching the movie, I can't really point to the part where things change. And it's a key, it's supposed to be a key part of the emotional arc of he's very um, repentant, A, of what he's done in the past, and B, that the cycle has been broken emotionally, where he's like, this time I'm emotionally invested. But if you watch the movie, I can't go like... Uh, here he's not emotionally invested, and then over here he is emotionally invested, and in this part he's kind of in between. He kind of it just kind of gets played at the same level until the cards are on the table, if that makes sense. Yeah. I kind of felt like he was being a little bit led by Jessica Chastain, but yeah. that certainly doesn't mean that he wasn't complicit in all of the evil. No. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the pluses and minuses of the movies. There's absolutely gorgeous production design, absolutely lavish production design. Really, like what you'd expect from Guillermo. But the story doesn't seem to reflect it or need it as much. In a way, the movie is more reliance on the look than ever before. In the past, with The Devil's Backbone, with Pan's Labyrinth, um, there was shit, even with Blade 2, <laughs> with the momentum of what was happening, there was enough going on that the lavish production helped the movie, but, you know... It wasn't the star of the movie because the movie itself was too busy telling a story. In this case, the beautiful stuff is there because the movie is moving slow enough that it needs to give you shit to look at. It's pretty stuff to look at, but the other thing is this decision, which in, when I first heard it, I thought was really good news that he decided to make this a hard R horror movie, right? I don't know that it needs to be. I think that he probably, like this movie tanked really huge, right? Further evidence to why he can't make this H.P. Lovecraft movie, right? Uh, that's that's too bad, yeah. So, draw back the violence just slightly, and that's basically all that it would take, I think, to get this to a more PG level, which would give you a wider audience. There's literally like two scenes you could change the editing of and have it drop right down to PG-13. Yeah, and uh, but you know, I, 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 one hand again, I like, I like, he's making a fucking horror movie, but so Hill, Hiddleston is going to be stabbed in the face, right? Didn't and like, I, I get, I, yeah, and you know, the story is dark. There's an incestuous angle. There's murder, and you know, we see a lot of tiresome PG movies. There's a really good chance that if he'd gone PG, I'd be sitting here saying, why didn't he just go? full on and say are, but I will argue that that hurt the returns on this movie. I think that more people would have seen it, it would have made more money, Guillermo would have more street cred <laughs> as a result of this movie. I've heard some people, friends of mine, that are just absolutely brutal to the movie. I don't think it's a catastrophe, but I think it's very weak in the catalog of Guillermo del Toro, considering how hands-on he was in this. He co-wrote the screenplay, you know? It works enough that it's not terrible, but by Guillermo del Toro standards, I'm hoping this is his Lady Killers. Okay? <laughs> My Coen brothers, who I'm big fans of, made a movie with Tom Hanks called The Lady Killers, which is okay, but <laughs> in their canon of films, it's just disappointing. It's just disappointing. And he's late enough in his career that this isn't Blade Two. This isn't Mimic, where the studio's fucking with him. This is like Guillermo 
doing he had creative exactly control over the this. movie that yeah. he wanted to make. And I'm surprised that it's not the movie that I wanted to see as much. Now, I think I'm being more severe. I keep on hearing... I, I hear these That's, words come out of my mouth, and I'm like, holy shit, Larry. <laughs> but, well, <laughs> last time when we had our first podcast, uh, I did a real quick plug for my 2015 uh, movie review video. And we had... Me and my friend, Gray Murfield, we had two. We have, like, a short eight minute. These are our top ten. And then we had, like, a two and a half hour I don't know what we cut it down to but probably still multiple hour like just discussion of almost every movie we've seen which was almost every movie of 2015 and the biggest thing that we spent time talking on was Crimson Peak Um, I'm coming at it from the other direction where I feel guilty because I'm like the I'm the friend that not hates it but like I'm the one that's not as up on it, I'm actually surprised how much we're in I'm tune with this page. so far. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, because as you were saying, the production design and uh, like any of the design is really good. There's really, really solid coloring choices and yeah. interesting coloring choices done throughout this movie. I like I, that the we, house is sinking, literally yeah. sinking into For, the ground. One thing that's actually really cool is with the there's one singular exception to this. Every time something is red, it's a something that you would expect to be menacing, but be something that's actually good. I guess something we haven't mentioned is that the ghosts in this movie are good guys or yeah. at least neutral uh, entities they are not the horror element they're just very intimidating to look at but they are blood red but they are you know more or less warning her yeah they're warning her and same with the mansion like it's like I almost wish they delved into the house having uh, being a character in and of itself a little bit harder. But there is a part towards the end where the house, yeah, it's sinking, it has, it's blood red, like sinks sometimes spew out the clay that looks like blood, and it's supposed to feel very menacing. But the house as a whole works to help uh, our main character. Um, it, it's cool to look at, but I don't know, I just can't get invested in the story the way I should for a movie like this. Well, the ghosts, I think, are another one of the things that I would catalog as both a plus and a minus to the movie. I think they look fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, I love the way the ghosts look. But their service to the plot, like you say, is to basically warn her or point her in the direction of the next clue, which serves, A, to take the scare away from the ghost, and B, to take the effectiveness away from the main character. Mia Wasikowska, again, maybe it's more of a character thing than a performance, the story is told to her. She doesn't really do a lot active to solve it. She walks slowly down dark corridors and then a ghost goes boo and she finds the next clue. But everything, it's a path laid out for her. It's not really discovery. And I feel like that as an audience member, there's the thing, I, it probably isn't a George R. R. Martin invention, but he's who I associated with. This three-step reveal of like you very subtly into something way early on and then you kind of nod at something. You're like, oh, a key, that's weird. And then you're like, hmm, a locked door, and then you, like, flat out give the reveal of, like, oh, the key that my dad left me in his inheritance, and unlocks the door. Except that I feel like this movie sometimes has four-step discoveries, yeah. where you're like, okay, uh, she's probably bad. Oh, yeah, they're probably bad. Ah, they're killing people. Definitely oh, bad. good, she's listening to an audio message explaining how they're killing people. Yeah. Thanks, I was stupid and didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm, and again, like, I'm sounding more angry. Like, I'm not angry at this movie, I don't hate the movie. It's just, it should be great, and it's only pretty good thing is is like it's as good as it looks and the the script does in an a b and c sort of fashion work i just expect more from guillermo the one thing one plot element that when i walked away from it both times because i watched it twice now i just couldn't choke down and that i can't really resolve like how anybody missed it or, or why it's there and again it's another choice even if you want to make it an r-rated movie early in the first act of the movie uh the main character's father is killed in 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 a 
borderline comedic fashion. What his are you head, doing here? His head is smashed into a sink repeatedly. It splits open. The corner of the sh- sink actually shatters and breaks yeah. off, okay? Uh, depending on my mental well-being and my physical well-being, I will weigh, say, between 260 and 280 pounds at any given time. And there's no fucking way I could do that to a human being. So when the reveal comes around later in the movie and they turn the angle up and we see that the killer is Jessica Chastain, I don't believe it. I didn't believe that it was Tom Hiddleston. I wouldn't even believe, like you said, that it was a hired goon. It would have to be some sort of supernaturally strong person. The mountain and, from Game of Thrones. He yeah. knows, He's known to do that. Yeah, Holdor or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, but at the same time, like it seems like an easy fix, too. His throat could have been cut, right? He was like, in a shaving place. He was there shaving his face. It seemed like they were setting that up. Uh, it was like they did this crazy, ultra-violent, over-the-top kill... And that was, it, it looked cool, but at the same time, it actually hurt the story that you were telling. It, I think that, like, she's a vicious character, absolutely, but she would be stealthy and brutal. I actually believe her more to cut this guy's throat than to, like, physically ram his skull into the sink. And it's like you said, it's supposed to be a fake-out. Uh, like, I'm really certain the idea is it'll be a physically brutal murdering, so you think that it's, it's the man. male. Yeah. But they're both, like, both Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain are about physically equal. No, I think, I think like, Chastain if they were, could take him in a fight. Probably, probably. like, if they were in a fight to the death, I would, yeah, I'd probably vote for Jessica Chastain. I honestly, and this is kind of just the the creative in me, like, ooh, if I was doing this movie, I would have maybe cut out the entire first segment in America and just started it there going she in Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak. Yeah. Her husband. Yeah. Yeah, that takes half an hour out of the movie. But I guess they wanted to involve Charlie Hunnam. We've got this far and we haven't even mentioned Charlie Hunnam, which sort of explains oh, yeah. how little he has to do with the story. Well, he was busy starting a biker gang, I think, in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think we've. I, I've been pretty labored on this. Uh, it's not a terrible movie. In fact, it's probably a good movie. And yet, here I sit disappointed. Good evening. Civilized towns. You look a man direct in the face when you talk to him. This isn't comfortable. Well, it's not supposed to be. <laughs> Here's a uh, situation. Serious. Mrs. O'Dwyer was abducted. She is my everything, and those savages have got her. God knows what they're doing to her. Every second, they're we delayed. You know who did this? They don't have a name. How many of them do you think there are? It won't matter. You have no chance against any number of them. I'm, I'm coming with you. No, no, I need you here. And this is what a backup's for, to help an emergency, not stay back. I'm coming. We're making a five-day journey in three days, riding along and sleeping the bare minimum. I don't know what's west of here. No cattle trail or anything else goes in that direction. If our horses die before we get there, when we go into hostile territory, weak and foggy with exhaustion, we won't rescue anybody. Don't be scared. I am a friend. So here, listen, this is where I'm going to tip my hand somewhat early, okay? Okay. Uh, Last year, Kurt Russell was in two westerns. And he One of them was The Hateful Eight, directed by Quentin Tarantino, three-hour ultra-bloody western. And the other better one is Bone Tomahawk. So you also weren't a huge fan of Hateful Eight. It's not that I... I mean, like, Hateful Eight's a conversation for another day. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll get to uh, other historic horrors again. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I don't dislike Hateful Eight. I think Bone Tomahawk is a better movie. 
I think it's a better movie across the board. I think it's a better screenplay. I think even though, you know, they got classic cinematographer and, you know, this classic uh, music score for Hateful Eight, I think it feels more authentically a Western. And most importantly for genre fans, I think it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> there, I think it was maybe remakes. There was a recent episode where you were talking about movies that pretend like they're a PG horror and then go hard R. Right. This is this is that movie of these lists. <laughs> like this movie, the very beginning, it almost like I almost question because like I mentioned before, I watched almost every 2015 movie, right. and I'd almost question like, did this actually come out last year? Because they were doing like very traditional like cutaways for the first little bit of uh anytime something gory would have happened you just cut away and it's like I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know when it was shot but it was definitely released just last year so. yeah um I, I mean it had to be shot as i was gonna say i almost interrupted you during your introduction uh uh kurt russell has the hateful eight mustache still yeah. so i assume that they were shot back to fairly back. soon like yeah he got off the set of hateful eight and just walked over across <laughs> the studio to <laughs> bone tomahawk where I'm it wasn't in, snowing I'm in I guess. cowboy mode yeah exactly um, quick, you have me in two hours in cowboy mode, and then I'm then I'm done for the day. Uh, it's yeah, it like cuts away very almost in a cheesy way. Like it's scared of blood. It's really cool. And then that yeah, towards the end of the movie, Jesus, that's that's insanity. Are you familiar with a classic John Ford plus John Wayne western called The Searchers? No, I'm not. It's very similar in premise, as in there's a family member who's kidnapped by uh, natives, and they go on a long quest to try and return them. But remember, this time it's not natives. Yeah. It's it's troglodytes. That's, Real natives would never do that. That's what I'm saying. The, this is the <laughs> horror movie version of The Searches, is what I was getting to. Hmm. Um, and they take pains to try and tell us that this group of... I would call them monsters. Like, to call them native people or tribal or whatever. They're, yeah. They're like, absolutely like, awful. This awful. is the definition of savage. Yeah. Like, monstrous cave creatures. Like, they, they, they almost take on a supernatural quality. Um, and they even have other Native American characters in the movie when they talk about them. They're just like, no, those aren't even people. They need, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can tell you where they live, but I'm not going anywhere near there. And if you go anywhere near there, they will fucking kill you. <laughs> and uh, the advice they're given that they don't heed is pretty correct in a lot of ways. Yeah, and again, as audience members, we're watching this and we're like, well, they like cut away during all the kills, so it can't be that bad. Like Our main characters are safe, right? Yeah. And uh, boy, do they flip that on its head. <laughs> Well, basically, we have a couple of uh, cowboys who are doing bad business. Uh, we, we, it opens with a guy getting his throat cut as waking up to having his own throat being slit. It sort of sets the tone that we're getting to in the movie. Um, they uh, are in, being pursued, and they end up desecrating this burial ground. One of them is killed by some arrows. The other gets away, and a few days later washes up in this small town. The small town has a sheriff who is Kurt Russell and the sort of somewhat retired but, you know, still sparky uh, sheriff's deputy kind of uh, Richard, uh, man, I'm having trouble with names here today, Richard Jenkins, who's an actor I just love. Um, I I spent most of the movie just living in fear for that character because (laughs) I love that character so much. Kurt Russell has to shoot while arresting this uh, this rapscallion. Calls in the doctor, who happens to be uh, a woman who's married to a friend of his, to look after him. And when he goes home and comes back to see how things have resolved in the morning, 
finds out that the doctor has been kidnapped, that everybody that was basically there attending him have suddenly vanished. And they saddle up the horses and they set out in pursuit. Uh, joining them on the band, Patrick, um, Patrick Wilson, whose wife is missing, and uh, this sort of strange dandy character played by uh, Matthew Fox of Lost fame, who's an actor I just can't put my finger on. Sometimes I really like him, sometimes I think he's pushing it way too hard. In this case, I actually really think he's got a juicy character that he sinks his teeth in. Very enjoyable in this movie, yeah. So basically what happens is a quest movie. A lot of the movie is them getting to this place. And once they get to this place, it <laughs> it becomes like a really grueling, almost torture porn movie. Well, there's both, yeah, naked people and torture at one part. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's basically the premise. We got to get these people back from these evil, savage hill folk. Yeah. And off we go. It's like hills have eyes by way of tombstone. I guess. <laughs> the way over there hills have eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got to say, knowing what we know now at the end of the movie about the troglodytes, I would be in horror for the rest of the village. Except that, spoilers, by the end of it, uh, they're all dead. But the fact that they came out all the way to the village, again, knowing what we know now, yeah. if I was, like the Native American was, if I knew that and I was like, oh, they've come here to take people, that's, I would probably just leave the town. I'd be like, you know what, just leave your wife and loved ones. We're moving this whole town, like, four days south or something. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's interesting that, that they've managed to live so relatively close to them and not realize it. But that is because they are very small and uh, basically only the men seem to matter in this culture. In fact, in one of the movie's most horrifying revelations, we see that the women are basically bound, laying on rocks, their limbs are amputated, and they're all just pregnant. Oh, that's another thing about these people, is they're straight-up cannibals. I assume that they just cut off, the, once the legs are big enough to eat, they just cut them off for food. Yeah, like, Jesus, these, these yeah. villains are absolutely appalling. Um, and the movie, it, it takes that nice sort of Western beat in that it, it starts off big, action sequence, gets you into the world, and then it sort of hunkers down on the porch for a little while, and it lets you get to know all of these characters. So as they ride out, I don't really like the Matthew Fox character. He seems like kind of a dick, but he's an interesting character. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like the forthrightness of the Kurt Russell character in that, you know, he's kind of a shoot first, ask questions later type of guy, but uh, absolutely, he gets the job done. He kind of can respect that. And like I said, I just love Richard Jenkins as this old fart who shouldn't be up on the horse at all, but... <laughs> He but he was, insisted. He will do anything for the sheriff. He just, he's like... He's so lovable. Yeah, yeah, you just love him right away, which is why he, I flagged him for death. Like, <laughs> even, in the, even before we get to the, like, the more horrific parts towards the end, and even after we've recovered from the horrific parts at the beginning, um, he just feels like a little too glimmer of hope for this world. <laughs> yeah. And then we have Patrick Wilson, who suffered a terrible leg injury that we've never been really clear on, but the journey actually aggravates it, and we, there's a rather horrifying field operation that they, that they <laughs> do on his leg. All the little details, you can tell that this writer-director definitely, you know, loves this period and <laughs> is making the kind of movie that he's probably been chewing over for a long time. You know, like, uh, Bone Tomahawk isn't a movie you just get to make, <laughs> you know, he, he probably had this cooking for a long time, and uh, I'm glad to see it see fruition. 
uh, I think that the most dramatic thing to talk about in in the movie and what anybody who walks away from it will be the last 20 minutes. And this is an over two hour movie. Like, it's not all this, but it's hard not to mention (laughs) the level of violence that we are subjected to. Like, I I talked about The Hateful Eight, which is an incredibly bloody movie, but it's basically like a Disney movie by contrast. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. There's some parts of Hateful Eight that make me very uh, empathetically scream in my chair, but definitely, uh, I guess, yeah, by comparison, some of the stuff that happens at the end of this movie is just, like it belongs in a Saw movie, and even then, it would probably overshadow the rest of the deaths. But it seems weirdly justified in this world, right? I don't. The, the thing that kind of grabbed me. Are we gonna say yeah. the main thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They strip a guy naked, uh, hang him upside down, scalp him scalp in front him of alive. Uh, scalp him alive in front of his people, hang him upside down, and then bisect use, him from the groin down. The worst way to get cut in half. Yeah. Um, and uh, they do it in front of everybody. Yes. So, like, everybody's in their cages. They know that their turn is going to be coming up here. This guy's screaming. They're talking to him, trying fruitlessly to comfort him and telling him to be yeah. brave. And it's simultaneously a torture scene and a psychological torture scene. Yes. And uh, it, like, seriously, if anybody's, like, got a problem with, like, really brutal violence... I there's no way I can soft shoot it. It's one of the most incredibly violent sequences I can just pull out of the top of my head. Short of like Romero's Day of the Dead, <laughs> like it is incredibly violent and it doesn't become cartoon. It's not zombie. This is a real guy who we know who's friends with Kurt Russell yeah. who dies this absolutely miserable death. And the other thing about it too is like it's so mechanical. Like, it, these guys are cannibals, and they, like, cut him, they, they bisect him, yeah, from the groin down, um, and then all of his guts fall out, and I'm like, oh, yeah, if you're a cannibal, splitting a person in half and having all the unedible parts just flow, that's probably very practical for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how they treat it. It's like, oh, yeah, this is, like, it sucks that they scalped him, and that was pretty jerkish of them, but it feels like, yeah, it's the... It's the emotionlessness and the the mechanics of it on their part, packed with their friends having to watch. That just this is like a one-two punch. It's real hard to take. You would think if they're making it this painful on the guy, it's because they're sadistic and enjoying it. But they don't even seem to be enjoying it. It's just how they do business. Right. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matthew Fox's character has sort of an interesting dead end. We're going into spoilers here, but. Like I said, he's kind of this wealthy, well-educated man who sort of snubs his nose down at everybody. He feels like he's cleaner, brighter, and better than everyone else. He says like as much the, in the movie. And he says as much in the movie, which is another reason to kind of not like his character. But the interesting thing is that he didn't have to go on this quest. He just felt because he involved himself, because he happened to be in the bar when the shooting took place, and he said that he would walk the lady doctor home or whatever it was that he felt that he'd involved yeah. himself. Oh, he, he retrieved the doctor. That's right. So somehow that made it his fault that she got kidnapped. The, the math there is completely wrong, right? It feels like he's just, he's connected just enough that, like, if he stayed at town and it was like, oh, yeah, they all got eaten by the chocolate uh, animal, it would bother him, even though he pretends like it wouldn't. And that sort of makes him likable. But it's interesting because when they finally get assaulted for the first time, they finally get close enough to the territory, 
He takes a significant wound, but I don't think a mortal wound. No. But with that wound, he says, that's it, you guys. You go ahead. I'm done. (laughs) And he sets about this plan. Give me some dynamite. Give me some bullets. I'll buy you some time. And you're expecting this scene that you've seen in a lot of Western movies or a lot of war movies where the wounded soldier makes a grand exit by, you know, sacrificing himself to save others and get rid of the bad guys. And he gets one of them. (laughs) It's really like, it's really blunted. He doesn't get that heroic moment. We're set up for it. We don't get it. If I'm remembering the movie properly, like, we don't even see it for him, do we? Like they just the main characters just hear his gunshot or something. We we see him get a round off, and we yeah. see the the thing flying through the air, and I believe it cuts right before you hear the thwack. Yeah, but you know he's out. He's yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just a lot of things you don't expect. Um, the walking wounded Patrick Wilson character just seems like. He's this dead weight on the group. All he's going to do is slow them down and not be effective and get killed. Right? And several times in the movie, they tell him, they're like, hey, man, yeah. if you went home, no one would blame you. Yeah, but we're trying to rescue your wife. Yeah. Like, that's that's what we're here to do. And you're actively slowing the rescue of your wife. And it finally gets to the point where they do have to leave him behind temporarily. And that ends up being sort of their saving grace. Yeah. <laughs> because he can come in and, and, and save the day. Um I think that the only sort of point in the screenplay where I went like, I, I guess I don't question it, it just didn't seem like a logical, intuitive leap, is that these these evil creatures have this bone thing in their throat that they kind of can whistle through yeah, to sort of acknowledge each other when they're approaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've heard this sound throughout the movie. We've heard it long before we've seen them, that we've associated them. It's sort of this this evil's version of chee-chee-chee. Right, yeah. you hear that sound, you know they're coming, and it's been throughout the movie. They seeded it really well, but Patrick Wilson, upon killing one of them, actually re- removes this <laughs> plug from the throat and blows through it like he's going to communicate to a raptor. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, is a reference to Jurassic Park three. Now that becomes in handy. So as he's approaching the the bad, you know, hold where his friends are being being held captive. He can blow that, and people will think it's a friendly approaching, or when they come around the corner, they're not armed, so he can yeah. get the drop on them. I get it as a narrative sort of device, but I don't get how that character sees the bulge in his throat and says, ah, this is a whistle that they use to communicate. <laughs> Didn't he watch one of the guys use it or something? Like, I don't know. I feel like... I didn't see the aha moment. It doesn't mean I didn't miss it. A hundred percent. No, I don't... Yeah, I don't... I, as an audience member, piece together what he should have done, like, a little bit, like, oh, yeah, cut out the whistle thingy. Yeah. Um, and you want him to go save them at this point. Yeah. So you're just on board. But it's the one little thing in the screenplay that kind of made me go, well, just the idea of putting that in your mouth is horrifying anyway. He cut yeah. it out of the dude's throat. And now he's blowing through. <laughs> For me, yeah, I have a slightly bigger, uh, like, a more broad strokes uh, issue will kind of bring back like Crimson Peak where it's like I don't hate this movie I don't like hate this thing but I feel like the whole trek there could have been trimmed down a little bit I, in general I I feel like it's one step maybe not one step but like there's like 80% learning about the characters and then 20% travel and it doesn't feel quite like 
uh, a well-paced journey to me. Like the last twenty minutes definitely are quite the roller coaster, but there's a lot of traveling in the desert, and not every discussion uh, indicates to me, uh, not every discussion made me go away going like I know more about these people now, and not quite every moment was an endearing necessary moment i thought i'm not sure which one specifically i cut but i feel like this movie could have been like 20 minutes shorter to its benefit i i, I like the little details throughout the movie um we're talking about a, a different western the cohen we'll go back to the cohen brothers again they did a remake of um true grit oh yeah and there's that scene where jeff bridges is laying the whip around the campfire, the rope around the campfire, mm -hmm. because he believes that will keep snakes away. Yeah. It's just this one of these small details that it's kind of endearing. And Bone Tomahawk is a lot of those small details, but usually they'll find a way to creep up and incorporate themselves into the script. What I like about this long journey that you're talking about, A, is that it's sort of part of the standard of the Western piece, is that they go on this epic journey. They don't just ride across a field and go fight the bad guys. I they wouldn't want to, that either. They have, to, they have to go on a journey, and they become closer, and we become closer with them through the journey. So that when the worm turns, and when the knives come out, we care. Even though we didn't like Matthew Fox's character, when he dies, I was like, oh, shit. Right? And uh, we see that dude get brutalized in front of everybody else it's horrifying for him and for everyone in the room you know by the time you know richard jenkins and patrick wilson hobble away from that cave and they hear those distant gunshots uh i am so thrilled that these two at least got out of the situation but uh it, it's kind of a haunting way to leave it with the kurt russell character we don't know what happened but nothing good right <laughs> yeah uh, Best case and scenario, I just he's wonder dead. if it would have been as impactful if we didn't have that middle hour. And I'm absolutely not saying like, oh, this should not have been a long journey. I'm saying it should not have been quite as long. What you're right in saying is that basically action for the first half an hour, and then an hour of Western, yeah. and then action for the last half an hour. And that might structurally, admittedly, be a problem. Personally, I fucking love it. <laughs> Is it true he can walk through doors? I will not leave you. They're afraid. I have visions I cannot explain. Light explodes inside my head. Like an earthquake, ripping me apart, planting my reason. I've lost those I depend on most. I never knew a sickness to be so eloquent. From their suffering, they shall repent. Oh, forgive me. <laughs> a movie on a shelf somewhere and uh, okay this is a really cool cast and an interesting premise why have I not heard of this <laughs> and usually it's a bad thing every now and then I'll get surprised my wife and I reviewed a movie called uh, Red Lights which was one of these uh, Killian Murphy <laughs> Robert De Niro Sigourney Weaver I'm still most excited about Cillian Murphy. Right. And uh, all of these people are in it. And I was like, Toby Jones? Like, what the hell? And I'd never heard of it. Similarly, Black Plague shows up. And uh, I think you could be, con you know, it's just like, well, this looks like some sort of cheap way to kill time between seasons of Game of Thrones. It, it's very... Lena they're straight Hedy. up doing the leprechaun thing of, like, <laughs> clearly this was made after Game... Like, the the 
the uh, cover for this movie for the current prints was made after Game of Thrones became a thing because it has Lena Headey on a almost Iron Throne made out of bones with yeah. a giant sword with a dress that I don't think she ever wears in the show no. with the smug that I don't think she ever wears the uh, smug smirk that I don't think she ever wears in the show. Um, but yeah, I could. I mean, I would be forgiven for thinking, like you say, it's one of these knockoff movies or they're just trying to make a quick buck. I don't think that's what it is. Once I look at it, it's obviously a European production mm-hmm. um, obviously an international cast um, and they do a reasonable job although it's a low budget of convincing me of the period some of the people are cleaner and shinier than others <laughs> um, the movie's got this strange all over the place vibe when we were talking about Crimson Peak I was saying that like uh, there were things that were both simultaneously good and bad for the movie mm-hmm this movie seemed to make interesting choices where there'd be scenes where it would seem to be calling for, uh, just in the terms of the plot, some sex and violence that would be justifiable to show us within the story. Mm-hmm. And they don't. And then there's other scenes where they show us strangely explicit things and they don't really seem to need to. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just confusing. The basic story is uh, Lena Hede is the basically reigning over the territory of her husband who is off at the wars, and she's trying to keep things uh, going at home. She's unfortunately wearing a chastity belt. It's one of the first times I've seen a chastity belt really used as a plot point in a major movie before. That's not uh, fair. Your Highness also had a chastity belt that was a plot yeah, point. I was talking I'm, about movies, not oh, abortion. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> 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 Just uh, your highness. No, Although fair. that could be in historic horrors too, I suppose. You're right. We should have done that. Like, oh, each time the characters keep not dying and I want them to. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Black Plague. She's financially, her, her kingdom is financially unstable. There's a lot of people that would be helpful to her, but obviously want other things. Very she, indebted to the local bishop. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the this religious figure who she must report to. In typical movie, sort of villainizing people of the cloth, uh, he's been collecting all of these arts from the Kama Sutra and stuff like that. And in order to forgive her debt, uh, if she doesn't make good on the debt that's owed, she's going to have to do all these horrendous sex acts and defy the good name of her husband. In the meantime, they have a high-value prisoner that they believe that they can exchange for some currency uh, to get their husband, her husband back and regain her status and her currency. So she's got all these balls in the air, all this shit that she's got to deal with, all this stress and all of these very real stakes. And it's not an uninteresting premise. But I've got this feeling the whole time I'm watching the movie, while it's not terrible, it's just not there. It's just not there. <laughs> 100%. I wish I could be sitting here saying... The reason it falls apart is this. And it's not any one thing. I think that the French prisoner they have is a little bit too Harlequin romance novel yeah. cover boy pretty. But, but I that's, also. That's a pretty sketchy complaint to have in a world where. Chastity Belt's also up. really medieval, and the castle's also really. Like, I, it's kind of. It's almost par for the course. Like, I guess, yeah, he does stick out as being a little bit more exaggerated than other elements of the show, but. Considering he spends most of the movie as a prisoner being beaten and defiled, he always looks super sexy when he needs yeah yeah he does (laughs) (laughs) I um my thing I don't know that this is a one thing that I 
think is wrong with the movie necessarily, but if I were to make one big change, I would not. I would remove all the horror elements of this and just have it be a drama. Yeah, I feel like that's the stuff that works a lot better. And if anything, the movie gets muddled as it tries to incorporate the supernatural elements and the horrific elements towards the last act. Uh, it just never really gelled with the things that I was a little bit more emotionally invested in. Like, oh, is Lena Headey going to get the mortgage ready in time or yeah. what? They don't pull the trigger on the horror. You're absolutely right. They set it up. They give us an origin. They give us a reason for this character to need to prevent this mysterious prisoner. As he shows up, this illness seems to show up with us. Her luck seems to like get worse and worse uh, upon his arrival. And we find out that, yeah, he's on a very specific course for revenge. And when that reveal happens, in order to justify all this terrible shit that's going on, especially if they're going to make us want to like him, and I think that they do in the end. I feel like, yeah, that's the idea. I don't know if they did it successfully, but I think we're <laughs> supposed to. Anyway, yeah. We find that the origin story for why he wants to revenge this revenge, why all this violence has happened, why all this has taken place, his mother was basically sentenced to death by Alina Hedy's husband in the most horrifying way possible. In a crowd full of people, because his wife had been unfaithful to him. It was death by gang rape. Yeah, he says basically a shilling to every man here who fucks my wife. And she is raped to death. Yeah, this movie, this. Right? But they won't pull the trigger on that. They won't pull the trigger on that. They won't. The, not that I want to see this woman gang raped to death, but like they just show us that. But they just show the crowd closing on them. But earlier in this exact same movie, there's a whole sequence where they're trying to investigate all the people who had left the country to see who's carrying the plague, and they have all these guys lifting up their balls to see yeah. <laughs> if there's these like they have no problem showing very graphic things, but. When the script calls for it, they won't do it. And when, especially if it's something, you know, to do with the horror element of it, I feel like somebody blanched, somebody turned away, somebody flinched when they should not have. The sexual repression of the Lena Hede character, I think, is another one of those things where it's in the performance more than it's in the script. Yeah. Like, when it's revealed that she has the... Uh, uh, Chastity belt. belt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it made sense. Like I understood. Okay, well, of course she has a chastity belt, and of course that's feeding into this, you know, <laughs> yeah, tension that she's going on. This her husband's been gone for years, and she's wearing this awful thing. Um, but again, when she finally gets free of that chastity belt, and she surprisingly cheats, easily, yeah, and she cheats on her husband, which is this great sin that she could never do until she learned the truth of him, right? There you have, you know, this freedom of sexuality. She's finally, you know, making a, her own bold choice. Let's have the sex. Nope. We're not going to have the sex. <laughs> you see, I feel like we are, saw too much in that scene because when she took off the chastity belt, my only thought was, how is she even going to the oh, bathroom? Yeah. This must be the grossest thing in <laughs> yeah. the world. Yeah. And they're just, like, looking at each other. And even, like, the implication of it, I was like, ew, ew. For the record, you're absolutely right, but there's nothing not gross about this period. Of yeah, no, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I was really grossed out by the bishop character. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're supposed to be, but that was an element of the plot that definitely worked. Every time they cut back to him, you know, they were, you know the days are ticking away on this ticking clock, and she, he is sending her these pictures of these graphic sexual acts. Again, we see pictures of graphic sexual acts, but we don't really see any sex in them. <laughs> and it works as a threat for the first 
bit of the movie. Well, not the first bit, but like uh, until the third act, like it definitely the implication and the the overhanging threat is there. You're like, oh, this is gonna be her, but you're right, it never culminates in anything. Yeah. It also doesn't really culminate into a huge revenge thing either because the horror kind of falls flat. So basically, yeah, I, I think you might have nailed it earlier on. Maybe that was what the movie just needed. Just I think it wanted to be a sort of historical drama, and they decided to try and sell it as a hella dark, you know, supernatural Game of Thronesy sort of thing. Uh, well, it was made before Game of Thrones, but I see, yeah, uh, that's BBC, how they're selling yeah, it. yeah, that's that how type of thing, it. yeah. Um, in, in this day and age, there's always going to be a better movie to watch, I think, than Black Plague. I think that if you stumble upon it, you can just keep on going. Unless you have to choose between this and Your Highness, then, then choose yeah, Black Plague. Absolutely, absolutely. Watch this twice before you <laughs> watch Your Highness once. Um, if you're, uh, it's an interesting movie of, of its this sort of period, though. I think that it looks good. They obviously shot it in authentic locations. Yeah. And the, the feel of it is almost there. But almost doesn't quite get me. The one thing that... It, it is a low production... Sorry, not a low production value. It is a low budget movie. And I feel like they service themselves well by having it go towards the kind of set pieces. And even though, yeah, the people feel a little bit cleaner than they should at times. Um, I think a bigger problem that I have just mentally with the movie while watching it is... There's like three sets. Yeah. And it, it the movie doesn't have a sense of space. Even like with the... There's this thing where the husband's walking back from war to home. Uh, and it's like you show... They kind of show him walking over the same hill like yeah. five times. And the, the bishop's place, she's like, I'm going to see the bishop. And then it just cuts to inside a room, which feels like it could have been another part of the castle we see. Yeah. And I, again, I don't want to rag on it for being low budget. But I feel like a couple of establishing shots or environment shots could have helped. Like on their way back to London... When they're doing whatever, they should be like, I just film like this hill and this other castle and like give this place a sense of space in the bigger world. It feels like it's all shot around this one keep that they had access to for a month. And that's probably exactly the case. Yeah. (laughs) There's also some sort of weird fairy tale logic to her husband returning at the exact moment. (laughs) Right. That she's consummating her relationship If he had tripped once and like messed up his journey timing, she could have just been like, oh yeah, no, everything's... Cool. (laughs) I will say that uh, the stake set up by the evil sex bishop guy (laughs) held my attention enough that, like, I wanted to see how that would resolve. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things. Well, I was reviewing it for the podcast, obviously, too. I dutifully sat it out to see that story point played out because Mm -hmm. I just didn't (laughs) I think that the only thing grosser than having to, you know, do some sort of sex act with somebody that you find physically repugnant is if that person is a high-ranking member of the church. <laughs> right? <laughs> that is the one sequence of horror that this movie managed to keep. see Valhalla or that thing's head on a pole. The troll broke down these doors with 20 Danish warriors sleeping inside. What gives 13 geats better hope? 
we won't be sleeping. So as I said in the introduction, Beowulf is one of the oldest stories that we are aware of in written language. It is so old that the guy who bothered to write it down didn't bother to attribute his name to it or anyone's. It is just a story that's been around for fucking ever. And as someone who was an English major, I find that by itself just kind of interesting. I sometimes ask, is Beowulf something that people are very interested in because it's a very, very old story? Or is Beowulf something that someone's interested in because it's a very, very interesting story? The Shakespeare it, question. Or is it both? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, for those who are uninitiated, uh, it's a story of this king who uh, kills a troll, or what they refer to as a troll, which is just like a giant, super strong person in this world. But upon seeing the troll's child cowering on a ledge, decides he can't bring himself to kill the child and spares the child. And this act of, quote, compassion ends up costing him dearly. But it's interesting in that we sort of feel a little bit of sympathy towards the king in that we see the king's entire world falling apart. We see him losing his people to different religions. We see him losing his power and authority. And we see him helpless. And it's all because of an act of compassion. So we can feel sorry for him. But we can also feel sorry for a little boy who went down to the beach to see his father's corpse and tried to drag the corpse home to the cave but couldn't. So instead just had to cut off his dad's head <laughs> and take the head back to the cave where he would grow up and alone and become another monster just like his dad, right? So in this collision course between those two figures, the creature wants revenge on this king and starts, you know, causing damage. They call for a great hero to come deal with this strife. Enter Gerard Butler as Beowulf. And Beowulf wants to challenge the monster to a duel. But the monster doesn't want to fight Beowulf because he ain't got no beef with Beowulf. So Beowulf either has to create one or, you know, figure out how he's going to resolve this. That's the basic premise. Uh, it's a joint production of, I believe, Iceland and Canada? Yes. I hope I'm saying that right. I yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Do your research, Parsons. I know the Canada part is correct. Absolutely. Well, I'm at least 50% right there. Yeah. <laughs> and I really? want to say the other, like, the, the, like, I'm pretty sure it's Iceland. The cinematography is gorgeous, and they've got a nice international cast, which includes people from all over the world, and for some Canadian content, Sarah Pauly. Uh, what do you think of Beowulf from Grendel? I, spoilers for the <laughs> list, I love this movie. This movie came out of left field for me. I had not seen it before. Right. Um, I, for, for being low budget, this movie really played its uh, cards absolutely correctly, which is like... the absolute number one thing that I feel like they paid attention to was the script. Uh, and they worked with what they had very well. I love that I sympathize or at least understand with almost everyone in this movie at any given time. Everyone's kind of doing things that make sense for them at that time and don't make me go like, oh, you're just the good guy or you're just a bad guy. Even Beowulf, a hero as old as time. <laughs> like His deal is just kind of like, he's... He's a warrior, but he's just kind of—he's just kind of the best warrior. He's not a great warrior, like he's not some kind of legendary samurai in this world. He's just slightly better than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And then because they're all a bunch of hurly burly men, they talk it up, and that's—that's that's his sole backstory. I love that I 
the, I love the characterization of Grendel. I love the character design of Grendel. I like the story of Grendel. Yeah. I like how all of that plays out. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is Grendel uh, is bowling for skulls. Like, he has some skulls <laughs> on a ridge, and he just has rocks, and he tosses at him, and he misses, and he gets frustrated. And he hits one, and he's so excited yeah. about getting a strike, and he, like, dances around and rolls around. And in that one scene, it's, you're just like, oh, he's still mentally a child. Yeah. Like, you, you entire, without any kind of words of the dialogue, without exposition you get it entirely I think like beginning to end the movie justifies itself and justifies propelling itself forward I think it ends in a fairly satisfying and logical way I love this movie upside down and <laughs> right ways up except for one little scene which is why did uh, not to like just skip right into it but like why did Grendel have to rape that lady I don't understand that that felt very unnecessary well I don't think it's necessary Necessarily something that we couldn't expect Grendel to do because he's feral and he lived in the wilderness. And that all makes and sense. I'm just saying, from without, but her reaction to it and the way she tells the story, like basically one night Grendel showed up in my house and he raped me and he left. But he didn't he kill me after. And ever and since yeah. then, he's been sort of my protector. So he did this one terrible thing. He sired a child with me, as we find out later yeah. on. And, uh, and ever is... since then, we've been good. We had that one kind of <laughs> unpleasant bit of business, and then after that, we were good. And yeah, I, that I doesn't like necessarily sit well, does Especially it? Especially since later on, we find out that Grendel, it turns out, has a girlfriend or a wife or something. He could have sired a child with her, because <laughs> the child is important. But he could have just been her protector, because it's already shown that Grendel understands who the people who killed his father are, and who the people that hunt him are, yeah. and then who the people that are just kind of caught in their wake are. And it makes just as much sense for everything that's been set up in this movie that he would see her. She even describes, like, if you have to have a rape, which I don't think you do, but, like, even if... <laughs> He describes like, oh yeah, well other Danes would have just come here, raped me, and then and killed me. Like, have have that go down, and then Grendel comes in and is like, ah, don't do that. I hate Danes yeah. and I hate rape, and I'm a Grendel. Yeah, like that would have worked just as well for the narrative purposes of the movie. And then have the kid be with the Lady Grendel. But if that's your criteria for you know forgiveness, he didn't kill me after he raped me. Then you know, I see. I see why Beowulf hightails it out of there it, afterwards. It's, it's a story of a different time, and I like for what, sure. Uh, I mean, it's it's sticky no matter how you. Slice it. I think Sarah Polly handle, handles the material reasonably well. Me too. And uh, she's sort of got this weird witchy vibe. She lives off on her own, and she yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I liked it, but it is an uncomfortable element. And if it's a trigger for you, I mean, I guess heads up when you're going into the movie. Yeah, and I don't want to like, get super political and be like, nah, like this can never happen in a movie whatsoever. I'm just saying, in this case, I don't feel like it necessarily flows with the rest of the movie, which I thought was fantastic. Well, here's the interesting thing. I agree with you and disagree with you simultaneously because I really, really like the movie, but it's not the script that necessarily lipped off for me. It's, first of all, the cinematography is yeah is ridiculous. <laughs> you could watch the movie with the sound off and you'd probably still understand the story more or less. And They found would, the prettiest hills in Iceland probably. And it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a gorgeous movie. And apparently it was hell to shoot. It was very, very windy and they had a lot of uh, obstacles, but it... It shows up on screen. And what I like about it for all of its classic origins and for all of the pomp and circumstance with which they present it, it's a fucking monster movie. And mm -hmm. it's okay with being a monster movie. Like, uh, and and it's, 
morally complex and that we can switch where our sides are. We're on everybody's side. Yeah, I don't want to see anyone. I want everyone to go home happy. I want them to hug it out and be like, I'm sorry I killed your dad. I'm sorry I killed your men. I'm sorry that I'm Beowulf, I guess. I don't know. And, like, just go home happy. And, of course, it can't happen like that. Arguably, the only real villainous thing that we see would be the sea witch who comes to avenge Grendel, Grendel and... She's avenging her son's death. No, but even, yeah, even <laughs> at that point, like, oh, so is that supposed to be his mother? You're probably more steeped in this lore than I am. Uh, that's how I interpreted it, at least I, in, this, in this version. The trolls are awfully ugly, so I just thought it was his girlfriend. Yeah. But, but, like, either way, like, in this, yeah, it's kind of a just flat-out violent act that she commits, but it's in vengeance, the same, yeah. that's, and that's how this whole movie started. But when she shows up too, I just love how fucking badass she is. Like we didn't, we barely had hints that she existed mm-hmm. until this point, and then all of a sudden she shows up and she just fucking wolves out. It's pretty <laughs> yeah. hardcore. It's really um, great, yeah. But I, I, I just like that it has all the trappings and sort of presentation of this sort of period Oscar piece. But at its heart, it's this you know hard creature feature, right? And uh, I like that. <laughs> you know that 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 is what. As a genre appreciator, I, 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 I go for it. We were talking about how uh, Black Plague doesn't necessarily handle its horror and supernatural stuff well. This handles its monster element very well and justifies it very well. It doesn't feel a need to over-explain it. See, in this, just from this interpretation, and Zemeckis did a version, everybody sort of has their own sort of spin on it, it seems, when, when they do the story. But in this version, the way I took it is that, you know... The creatures, the the supernatural elements, or the, people, the things that they call trolls, are people who have sort of mingled with the supernatural, right? Mm-hmm. So if a man, for instance, had sex with that sea hag, a troll would maybe be the offspring of that, right? Yeah. They don't tell us that. We have to sort of just sort of intuit that. But the characters seem to know that. It's sort of like when you're watching some sort of police procedural on TV and uh, someone puts the evidence in a plastic bag and hands it to his buddy and says, yeah, take that down to the lab and ask them to run A, B, and C. Right? Mm-hmm. They would never fucking have that conversation. Yeah. They would never have that conversation. You just have the plastic bag and they know what They would just it. hand the guy the bag and the guy would do his fucking job, yeah. right? <laughs> and we would understand, oh, they're collecting evidence, right? I don't like it when the movies feel the need to spoon-feed us and over-explain and things. Like, Crimson Peak. <laughs> Crimson Peak. There is the flip side of this coin, though, which we'll be talking about next, where you can not explain enough, but I, I like that there's enough open doors and windows that you can see outside, but you got to focus on the story that, that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it, 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 for all the money they, or the, the expense and sort of effort that they went into making the movie, I think when it came out, it was a little bit disappointing, the reaction. I think it was well-received critically, but it had a hard time finding an audience. And I myself, it took me a few years to catch up to it. It was a movie that I got around to. But once I got around to seeing it, I was like, Everybody needs to watch this big Yeah, we're we're yeah. Um, I I entirely understand how like if this movie came out at theater in theaters at any given time, I can see how you'd look at it and be like, eh, I'm gonna go see the other thing. That's the actual <laughs> movie to go see. But I feel like I feel like this movie is aged better than it probably. Not that it's ahead of its time in any kind of nuanced way, but it just as a standalone thing without expectations, I think it ages a lot better than it would as a movie that needs to make its money back in the theaters. And as somebody who's said unkind things about Gerard Butler in the past, 
He's so, totally solid in this movie. What have you said place. about Gerard Butler? <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, they just fight his way. I reviewed Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera. Oh, in which no. He the Phantom. And uh, everything about that movie is rude. good, except for all the changes that they made. <laughs> just uh, every time they took creative license, it was horrible. But aside from that, I thought the movie was fun, but no, we're not talking about I, that. I think if you listen to my podcast, you'll find that I felt differently. <laughs> anyway, no, that's funny. Larry says, Please see Beowulf and Grendel. Please don't see Phantom of the Opera. I'm gonna say watch both if you can, but definitely see Beowulf and Grendel. Death Watch. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, too many maybe, because I can't remember where I heard this conversation, but <laughs> in some podcast I heard this, this gentleman talking about how World War I is not depicted enough in movies, and that maybe the reason is is because there's just no way to portray it in any kind of glamour that it was just a hellscape it was just awful and one of the many achievements of death watch is that i think that they that comes across there's a scene very early in the movie where some guy is walking toward a bunch bunker actually steps into the abdomen of a corpse yep. his foot disappears into it and he sort of steps out of it and shakes it off as if he just sunk into a puddle like he just keeps moving yeah everybody is wet and muddy, and sick, and bleeding, and miserable all of the time. And that's before the shit starts. And I think that for a low-budget movie, they definitely accomplished that. Uh, we have this this troop who, after a pretty bloody skirmish, that right away flagged me, it made me think, is this going to be one of these movies where they're all dead? We're going to find out that they're dead? Because they're in a really bloody firefight, and you're like, oh, this looks awful, and people are dropping left and right. And uh, they pull the few remaining members out of this fog, and this one guy who's been shot and looks like he's going to be paralyzed, and they find this system of trench, uh, system of trenches, and they figure they're just stumbled behind enemy lines. They better hold this position until they can get reinforced or figure out what to do. Problem is, is that this is an evil place that they have found. And that's the good, and the, like, the aesthetic and the performance are the good thing. I think that the evil place that they found is, is where the all-stop happens. Uh, this place is bad. It's evil. There's blood in the ground. There's barbed wire, that, barbed comes wire that comes alive like snakes. There's false voices. People get lured out and away from places, and evil shit happens. But as to the what or the why of that evil shit, uh, that... That shoe never drops. 
I had never got that revelation where we find out that everybody's dead. I never got the revelation where we found out why all this was happening. And I never got the revelation of, like, what this place was. And they almost do it at the very end. Like, they almost give you enough pieces with the, like, well, at least the German guy that they had captured was supernatural. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the troop at some point captures a German soldier. Uh and keep him hostage, and then it turns out that he's supernatural. But it does, like, it doesn't work to explain why things started going bad or what. And again, in the hellscape that that, that this movie is set in, it would seem like a relatively easy thing to argue, right? The war itself. There's been so much spilled blood, so much hatred, so much awfulness has happened that it's literally seeped into the ground and sullied this place in the same way that a house or someplace or a graveyard can become stained or haunted by an evil presence why not a you know why not a bunker why not a system of trenches but again it's the frustrating lack of answers that sort of is the one take a sort of notch against the movie because i think that it mostly works beyond that there's this uh, little bit of a cock tease in that we don't get the ta-da payoff. There is no M. Night Shyamalan twist. There is no aha. There is no, you know, this is the face of the evil. There is no why. A bunch of guys go to a place that's bad and they die. Except for one. one Except for one. But <laughs> yes. But, yeah. And we, it is implied that this is going to go on and on and on. I like individual beats of the stories. I like individual performances, but that is my overall sort of crutch to it. I wouldn't steer someone away from it just because there's so few movies like this one, but I have a feeling that there's another better movie haunting this. (laughs) Where where do you land on Death Watch? I never really landed for me. I also like the setting and the setup, and I also was a huge fan of the performances. This movie has Andy Serkis, who mm-hmm. me and I'm sure everyone else Sneagle really loves. himself. <laughs> yep. Really, uh, he's actually Caesar. Um, <laughs> that, Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. That's how people know him now. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I... Moment to moment, I never felt really compelled by this movie. I... It just, it just feels like stuff happens. And maybe it's like you're saying, maybe that's it. It's the lack of answers just doesn't justify each individual moment enough for me. But yeah, there's some guys in a bunker and you're like, all right. And then some of them are mad for some reason. And you're like, all right. And then some of them die for some reason. And you're like, all right. And it never, like we just got off the back of Beowulf and Grendel where like there's such a domino effect uh, of narrative. And this movie doesn't have one whatsoever. There's nothing kind of propelling the story forward. The story just happens. And no moral complexity at all. Everything is bad. Yeah. But there's also like, there's also no pulse to it. Everything's just bad all the time. And it kind of ramps up in in some way, but it doesn't, it doesn't ramp up in a natural way. Right. It's not like, oh, first, uh, first, um, Freddy's gonna kind of kill the one person in their dream, and now we're all in the same dream, and now, oh, except he's like foiled our plan, but that we came up with, and there's like no escalation emotionally. Just the horror gets more horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, at any given moment, I couldn't predict, and I mean this in a bad way, not a good way, at any given moment, I couldn't predict what was going to happen next, and also I didn't care. Yeah. 
Well, and here's the thing. We got Jamie Bell, who's this baby-faced kid who's sort of the blandly good character. He does freeze on the battlefield, but I forgive him for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, his other soldiers may think he's a coward, but I totally understand hurtling in a situation like that. And then Andy Serkis is sort of just representing everything bad. He's Mr. White? The military yeah. mindset, right? Um, and and the, they're both strong performances, but there's, like I say, black and white. No gray to them, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody in between kind of blurs together. It reminded me of the first time I watched the HBO series Band of Brothers, which mm. I think is brilliant, by the way. But I had a hard time distinguishing people the first time through. Like, it was a bunch of guys in military fatigues crawling around in snow and mud, right? So it took me the, the second or third viewing to get all of the corners of, oh, that was the same guy who... Yeah. But this is not a 10-hour miniseries right this is a 103 minute movie and i was having the same problem so consequently so when some so uh oh that guy died that guy died (laughs) you know Um, i've been really negative there is a few genuinely strong moments i'd like to say i think that the dude who's been shot and paralyzed has one of the worst fates that i can (laughs) like think of in any of these six movies Really? Bone Hawk. Oh, uh, well, he he's he doesn't feel anything from the waist down, and he's been laying in this trench for days and days and days, and the rats have been eating him, and he doesn't notice it. His buddy's comforting him, trying to tell him that everything's going to be okay, and he notices that the blanket's moving, and he lifts the blanket, and the guy's, like, half gone. And that is fucking horrible. That, yeah. is, that is fucking horrible. Like, horrifying <laughs> yeah. for that scene alone okay okay no that's a horror movie good points for that like that is that's awful and, and it does have a few moments which are uh when andy circus finally gets his comeuppance so cg it's as it quite is, the comeuppance yeah it, 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 it's very cg barbed wire is sort of poking through him and, and, and wrapping around him and everything yeah. like that but the idea of it is awful and it you know you really it's one of those obnoxious characters who you kind of wanted to see their comeuppance, but their comeuppance is so awful that you're like, okay, just die already? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, that's it. I say that as a positive, right? Mm. Like, uh, I think that everybody who was involved in this movie is probably in the right line of work. I just, like, I don't know if it was a, another pass on the script or, or, you know, just a slight bigger budget, and it's sort of been all the way home. It made it to, like third base to me you know this, but it didn't it didn't close the deal you know what i wouldn't be surprised if i found out that this movie was over edited that they actually had like a lot more material but then they trimmed it down for pacing and like just somewhere in there kind of like the warcraft movie just somewhere in there like little tidbits got Some lost got that they lost. didn't notice because they were so close to the material but us would have related to a little bit more we could have maybe put the separated the people a little bit more mentally with uh, them traveling across the West and sharing their stories, but we didn't have that. There's there's just great stuff here. Like I said, the environment is so rich. The the terrible place that they're in, finding a place that's haunted within the stakes of a battlefield is kind of interesting of itself. Yeah, I like that when they first encounter the <laughs> the bad guys, they're running towards them, screaming in terror themselves, and they just <laughs> get gunned down because the <laughs> enemy is the enemy, right? Yeah. If they were able to have a conversation, maybe they would have been a few steps ahead of the game before people started dying. You know, there, there's a bunch of almost here. So I think that the curiosity factor, if I'll put it this way, if us talking about the movie makes you curious, think oh, maybe I should check it out, then yes. 
But if this sounds just grim and awful to you, then yeah, well, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, grim and awful is, is, is the soup in which I swim, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. I, I just keep on going over that same thing. Moments worked, but overall, I think that I, I felt unsatisfied by the script. Yeah, I'm just tepid on the movie. Yeah. Simple as that. It can be this way for you always. I curse thee into the depths of the bottomless pit, there to remain until the day of wrath. Release me. What were you expecting, my love? The devil. All right, uh, we're going to talk about The Devil's Rock, which comes out of New Zealand. We're going all the way to the next world war. Yes, here we go, flash forward. Um, a couple of commandos, uh, Kiwi commandos, hit the beach on this island, uh, trying to sniff out the activities of those evil Nazis. And uh, one of the things I actually really like about this movie is that I get the feeling like this could take place in the world of like Indiana Jones. Like, the Nazis are really, like, cartoon-quality Nazis that you see in those... Like, when I see these Nazis, I don't think, oh, my God, the world is terrible, humanity sucks, the, you know, Auschwitz. None of those images fly through my brain. I just think <laughs> cartoon villain. Right? Yeah. And, you know, both of those things can have their place. But in The Devil's Rock, which has, the, as we were just discussing, the cover, which a bright red betitted demon on the cover of the DVD... Uh, <laughs> it's playing in a different sort of genre. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, it turns out those Nazis are doing bad things. They're experimenting with summoning a demon. Indiana fact, Jones should have stopped all of them. That's right. And uh, this demon can take the form of any female that is important to you and lure you in so that you can be eaten. That's the demon's power, although it also has this terrible drawback in that it can't cross moving water. So the fact that they summoned it on an island was maybe the only smart thing that any character did in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, the one British Nazi, he, d he seems to be pretty apt at reading the owner's manual of yeah. the demon. <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, I think that... The premise is ridiculous. You're just hearing me talk about it, right? So they've got this lady demon held up. Most of the German, uh, the Nazis have been killed. And, uh, yeah, it's up to this commando and this one surviving Nazi to figure out what they're going to do about this creature. It's ridiculous. Like, the premise is completely silly and ridiculous. But it is treated straightly. It's treated earnestly. I think uh, the acting in it overall is very strong, but I want to give special uh, mention to the, the the Nazi professor. I don't know if I can see his name here. But Christoph the, Walt. No, I'm, yeah, I'm joking. The, the mad scientist, the main Nazi that yes. we encounter in this movie. I think I think the guy knows exactly the movie he's in and just fucking nails that performance. Because it is a tightrope act. Because you have to take it seriously within the movie. While allowing the movie to be silly and fun and ridiculous. And much to my surprise, for a movie that has a titty demon on the cover, I had quite a bit of fun with The Devil's Rock. It's not amazing at all, but 
it's good enough for what it is. Yeah, I'm not going to be heartbroken when this didn't win the Oscar of that year, but I think it's a perfectly entertaining movie. I usually get into quibbles with people that try and justify bad movies as quote-unquote entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I feel like a movie can be both. Like, it can be quality and uh, entertaining and simple, and I think that's kind of what this is. This is not a bad but entertaining movie. This is just a purely entertaining movie. Yeah. But I could see why someone would see that cover. This this woman yeah. with painted bright red with horns on the side of red and her arms just covering the nips. So we don't <laughs> see, but you know, yeah, there's gonna be a, a sexy demon with her tits out in the in for uh, portions of this movie. It's but it's not really what the movie is about. It's how they sold the movie. Absolutely, right? it's funny because there is a part in the movie where her as in her human form, which it's it's kind of it's almost distracting because yeah, the demon can take the form of any lady that's important to you but they clearly got the same actress and put her in makeup to be the demon one so it's like but that's the same person when she looks like uh, maybe the professor's love interest or the, the Nazi guy's love interest does the demon version also have the face of the Nazi's love interest I, I digress anyway it's a just it's a small yeah. point as far as I'm concerned I, I mean, it's not a negative it's just on my notice anyways there's a part where her in human form she's like stripping if I'm remembering it correctly and I think the idea is you'd be like oh yeah let's see some titties and I'm like flash into a demon I really want to yeah, see you I in makeup I want to see the demon <laughs> yeah. uh, and she, she does yeah she, I mean, she's attractive enough, but I didn't, I didn't really feel the exploitation of it. Like, I feel like if someone looked exactly like my girlfriend but acted exactly like a demon, that would be enough to be like, eh, I'm not drawn in. Maybe I, it's because I haven't been away during a war long enough. Um, but yeah, she's got this siren thing. She will lure you in, and she will take whatever it will, whatever feminine pose she can take to lure you in. Be it a long lost love. Somebody that you've loved in the past that had died, or just—I'm sure it could uh, be like a sister or something or, too, or, or a supermodel that you wanted to put that, yeah. Especially in this really macho world of you know soldiers, Nazis, men with guns, killing, blah, 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 right? <laughs> uh, in wartime, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, guys are gonna you know probably be even more susceptible. But I, I, I like how the movie kind of implies that almost no man could resist. There is some female form that would be able to seduce you, me, anybody, right? <laughs> if she Men was Jennifer so Connelly, yeah. even if I knew she was a demon, I'd be like, look, just eat me quickly. Stay in human form for like a couple seconds extra for me. I'll make it easy for you. But, but I just think it doesn't say anything really proud about men that, that yeah. Well, it, I feel like, I, maybe I'm giving the movie too, a little too much credit, but there are a lot of stories of during war times, during both wars, both sides would send their women over as spies, and their whole deal is like, yeah, go seduce this guy, meet him at a bar, and apparently it was very effective. And the movie actually begins with a guy like, oh yeah, I met this really hot nurse at a, at like a club or whatever, uh, old time club, um, yeah. <laughs> at like a pub. And uh, we should go, she has a friend, and like the two commandos, he's like trying to bring him over. And in my head, before I knew what the movie was going to fully be about, even having seen the cover, I'm not a bright person, I guess. Um, <laughs> I was like, no, don't go to that dinner. She's clearly a spy. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, this movie is kind of like a supernatural version of that. But it's interesting that the most powerful figure in this whole movie by far, in a, in a, in a genre that's tr traditionally male only, oh, yeah. this war movie, the woman is the most powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And she's never really beaten. She's basically defeated because she was summoned on this island. She's she overcome, leave. but she's not defeated, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, 
I don't think I'm making more of it than the movie does in a lot of ways. In the movie, she's like a naked woman enchained, and at first she sort of plays it all coy. Oh no, no! When he hears the shrieks of of a female, he assumes the Nazis have been, you know, taken a prisoner and been raping this woman or doing. Which is, you know, fair enough. They're fucking Nazis. Nazis yeah. suck, right? Exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, so first he wants to be the heroic figure, but. Uh, once once he the worm turns and he realizes you know we've got a demon here, he basically has to make uncomfortable bedfellows with this Nazi to try and quote stop the demon, and wouldn't you know it the Nazi fucking cheats and tries to trick him. I can't even like <laughs> if you, you can't you're joking, Nazi. but like I there was a part of me that was hoping it would go the other way where the Nazi's like this is a demon she demoned all the Nazi out of me yeah. I just want to get off this island yeah. and I was like, actually kind of I'm giving this movie too much credit probably I was kind of hoping that the British guy would like he would turn on the Nazi preemptively like he's like nah man you're a Nazi the Nazi's like no I was not joking I like seriously need to have the pages around my neck we'll both get out of this trust me yeah. But I would like, but yeah, so the, yeah, there's this charm. Uh, he wears around his neck that has a page from one of the magic books in it, which prevents the creature from harming him. And then partway through the movie, he's like, hey, bro, I'm going to cast a spell to send her back to hell, but I need the page around my neck. And the guy's like, sure. And he puts a dec- he gives him a decoy. And part of me was hoping that the Nazi was just telling the truth yeah. because he was legitimately 100% more terrified of the demon than he was of Hitler or of retribution uh, or whatever. Is, this is not nah. the world we're in. Like I said, this no. is Indiana Jones. Jones world. Not only is he a Nazi, but when he got his, you know, first official fucking Nazi uniform and pendant, he, <laughs> he's just like, uh, just loves being evil. He just lives to do bad things, right? But uh, he, he plays it really well. Like, he's a master manipulator. Right? Yeah. yeah, we gotta work together to fight this demon that I summoned. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, I want to sacrifice you to this demon so that I can get a better control on it, right? Uh, obviously, surprise, surprise, it doesn't work out for the Nazis, but it's another one of those things where the evil is not, it can't really be vanquished as far as we understand. Not that I expect or necessarily want Devil's Rock 2, 3, <laughs> 4, but you could, if you want, imagine that that demon is still sitting, bored to tears on her island. Occasionally <laughs> getting Nazis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every now and then some Nazi comes to check out the secret base and gets like, Yeah, and she's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I've been so bored. <laughs> uh, it's a Kiwi production. They didn't have a lot of money, but, uh, you know, obviously they had three sets, like you said. Yeah. They had a beach, they had a, a bunker. And they had a hill that they could composite a castle onto. That's right. And, and that's what they needed. Uh, and again, you know, when you don't have the money, you, you got to sort of use what you can. And what they have in New Zealand is amazing scenery, <laughs> right? Your production value is right there. It's outside. It's in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of these movies that just is way better than you would expect it to be. You look at the cover, you read the back of it, and you feel like, I've seen this movie before, and it's lame. And you've seen variations of this movie before, but it isn't lame. It's all right. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, like, that, that's, that's about the tenor I put it. It's pretty good. Like, yeah. I don't want to be saying, you have to see The Devil's Rock. Drop what you're doing, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like unless you're going in full, like, unless you're going in to, like, hate a movie that's not, again, like, Oscar-worthy, whatever <laughs> that means, um, or what have you, it's a f- perfectly entertaining movie, you I think. You want to watch a movie about a hot demon eating Nazis? Yeah. Because <laughs> if you do, here it is. Exactly. <laughs> 
thank you so much for coming back to rank and review eric i appreciate it it was nice to look at some historical horror it's been since episode one like i said here we are um bringing it full circle for the we're last episode of the series. And, uh, i'd like to announce that this is the officially the final episode no no <laughs> anyway eric i would be very excited to hear what was your least favorite of these six historical horror movies and why? So as we were talking on the break, last time uh, we talked, we were kind of, we were coming from a position of defending kind of a what position. we thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were defending a position and that's where we were approaching it from. Uh, this time I'm kind of going the entire opposite direction and I'm just like, how do I feel about these movies? And you know how I feel? I feel like Death Watch is on the bottom. I just don't feel... Like, it's almost worse than the movies that I feel badly about. I don't feel (laughs) anything about this movie. I just... It doesn't pull me in enough. I don't feel like the highs are good enough to keep me interested. And as far as it goes, if I had, like, this list of, oh, hey, Eric, you need to watch all of these again. The episode got erased, and it's three years later. We need to watch them all again and do it again. The one I'd be least interested in watching again is Death Watch. Hmm. Um... The one I'd be second least interested in watching at number five is Black Plague. Um, Black Plague is an unsteady movie. The reason it's above Death Watch is because I found it more interesting. Like, the stuff that is interesting is more interesting than the- anything that I thought of for Death Watch. And like I said, I, I kind of want to just watch it for the dramatic purposes. Like, I just want to, like, have a de-horrored cut and just have, like, her struggling with how do I deal with the bishop and what's up with my husband? Is he dead? No one's heard of him for a while. And how do I handle a hostage situation? I've never done this before. Everyone wants to kill this guy. Like, I think that's inherently interesting. And even if the delivery is a little bit bungled, it's not a horrible movie. You know what else isn't a horrible movie? (laughs) I'm actually going to go on a little bit. I thought this was going to be way more contentious than it was. But my number four is Crimson Peak. And to talk about Crimson Peak, I don't want to talk about Crimson Peak. I actually want to talk about They Live for a brief moment, if I can. Um, Spoilers for They Live. But the premise is that there's this guy. It's this cult classic. There's this guy. And uh, he discovers that there are certain glasses. And if you put them on, they reveal the world for how it truly is. And it is truly run by aliens who are trying to control us. And it's such a good, solid cult film. Except that it was introduced to me by, uh, I don't even want to call him a friend, but like this long acquaintance, like a brother of a friend right. of the family. And he is the most conspiracy nut person that I know. Like any kind of ridiculous, the moon is actually a spaceship stuff, he legitimately, legitimately believes and puts on people. And he's. The world is flat and run by lizard people. A hundred, like legitimately, I can't even stress. Even in the back of their mind when you think of stuff like that, you're like, even the people that believe that don't believe that. But he believes that stuff religiously. And it ruined They Live For Me because I was watching it. I'm just like, this is just how he thinks it is. Like, he thinks this is some kind of documentary expose, and it just bothered me. As such, with Crimson Peak, everyone that I talked to, like, really loved Crimson Peak and made all the top ten. You run with a better crowd than I do, I guess. But, like, uh, for the internet, it made a lot of people's top ten lists. There was a lot of expectations going to it. I respect Guillermo del Toro a lot. I had a lot of expectations coming from PT. But the movie just feels flat. And I, uh... I can't get over that. Like, I just can't get over that internal bias of, like, no matter how well made it is, it's it doesn't pull me in the way it should. It does slightly more than Black Plague, but not the way that... So, like, this movie should be a masterpiece, given right. all of the creative control in the world. Uh, having worked with Hideo Kojima, this, like, 
famous video game uh, storyteller craftsman. I feel like Yelmo should have pulled off something more interesting. He just didn't. Number three, Devil's Rock. This movie is not a great movie. It's not a nuanced movie, but it is a very fun movie and a very legitimate movie, I would say. It's not a very... It's entertaining without being compromised. You, like I was saying before, some people seem to associate entertainment with like, oh, well, a movie could just be dumb fun. And like a movie doesn't have to be dumb to be fun. It can just be fun. Yeah. And that's what this movie is. Then I have Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> I, uh... I, it's, that middle it's a, hour. That middle hour took it out for yeah, you. Yeah, and it, like I said, it's not the whole middle hour. It's like... 10 minutes of it right. <laughs> like it just it just needed to be tightened a little bit and it needed to move forward a little bit and have have a little bit more i guess progression during that hour would have sold it to me instead instead of just finding out about the heroes if there, there's just kind of like it feels like a roller coaster almost you're just like slowly going up the first thing clickety, and clickety clickety clickety, clickety. <laughs> and like there's like a few too many clickety clickety's for right. me um and there it is. Uh, solid cast, solid script, solid delivery, especially yeah. for the last 20 minutes, like you said. Just uh, didn't fully hit it out of the park. Uh, and Beowulf and Grendel is just such a... It was my favorite discovery from this list. Yeah. I uh, Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the script. I'm a huge fan of the, oh, the delivery of this story. Uh, I think they made use of what they had incredibly well. There's like literally one part. Not that it's an otherwise flawless movie, but other than like the one, why did Grendel have to rape the hill witch? <laughs> Aside from that, the movie just flows so well and is so cohesive and is so properly structured that I like I almost want to watch it again like I almost yeah. want to just like forget what the seeing the new Jason Bourne movie I just want to like watch uh, Beowulf and Grendel again because it's just such a well delivered story and journey it's one that a lot of people miss too I think I think like it, it, we don't agree it's not at the top of the list for me but if, if, if it's a discovery for someone if someone finds that movie because of this podcast that makes me feel happy so, 100% uh, we almost went zero for six. It's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of amusing where we line up and where we don't, to be honest. But uh, I don't think we're going to have any serious scraps over this. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed watching this list. I, I don't think you know, it's nothing worth getting in a twist over. I put the Black Plague at the bottom of the list. There's, I, I think... I think I'll quote myself here when I say I feel like either the, on a dir direction or on a script level, somebody flinched. It was like they oh, they took us right to the line of where they were going to make this historic horror movie, and then they flinched at the last second. And then, you're right, it would have just been better served to have just been a straight drama than to have done so little service to the actual scary story that they were setting up. So, almost but not quite. Like I said, if not for that gross angle of her avoiding being raped by a religious official, uh, <laughs> that for some reason wanting to see that guy not get his justice <laughs> right. is basically what made me get through the movie. <laughs> yeah. I put Death Wash in, in fifth place. I love the setting. I think I like the movie just generally more than you did. Um, I've also seen it twice. Uh, you, obviously, I'm guessing you were. Working off of one viewing. I don't want to watch it twice. No. That was my whole point. I'm, well, I'm not saying watch it twice, but I do think that it helped having seen it a second time. Like, mm. uh, it, 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 
it sunk into me. And I want a good movie, even a non-horror movie made in World War One. but a, a good horror movie set in World War One would be awesome to see. So uh, until that movie comes, we'll just have to live with Death Watch to hold us over. Um, controversially low, considering what a fan I am of Guillermo, in fourth position I'm putting Crimson Peak. I didn't mention it in the movie, but I think it's one of those sort of... It's... It's emblematic of the things when I didn't like the movie. It was really loud. Uh, peak scene. Big spoiler moment. Uh, the, the two girls are having the ultimate knifey, stabby cat fight. The climactic battle of the movie. And Mia Wasikowski is given a zinger line before she smashes Jessica Chastain with the shovel. She said, I heard you the first time. And it was one of the most Hollywood on-the-nose lines that I ever felt coming out of a Guillermo del Toro movie. It did not feel empowering the way it was delivered like it was supposed to feel yeah, empowering. Yeah, and, and it felt very modern, and it felt it just felt out of sync. And that's how the movie feels to me. It's It, it looks good, the cast is good, but it seems just, just slightly out of sync. <laughs> the words don't quite match the mouth, and it distracts everything else. But I'm never going to be too hard on Guillermo because uh, it's it's decent. It's just not good by Guillermo standards. So we agree in third position is The Devil's Rock. And I thought this might be the movie that I was apologizing for because it really is Titty Demon Eats Nazis. Like, it's it's profoundly stupid when you get down to it. <laughs> Premise, sure, but it's delivered fine. <laughs> and, but that's it. It's 86 minutes. It moves. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it it does the job as efficiently as it can. And considering the low budget, uh, I think you get your money's worth. It's not something that you'd feel proud. <laughs> like I said, the cover of it is definitely selling the sex and the demon on the cover. And uh, the movie has more to it than that. I understand why they would use it to, to sell it. But that makes the movie look, in a way, even more cheesy than it is. It, yeah. I'm not saying it's not cheesy, but it's not anywhere near as cheesy as the packaging would suggest. And then in second place, I put Veolith and Grandel, uh, for all the reasons we talked about. Um, it was really nice for me to be on side with Gerard Butler because I've said mean <laughs> things about him in the past. I think he's fine in the movie. I love the production value. Uh, I think it's a great story. You know, the English major in me was satiated. The monster movie fan in me was satiated. Uh, it's, a, it's a good full-course meal. And uh, if you, like I said, if you have not seen it, if you've been avoiding it for whatever reason, I, I invite you. To check it out. It, it's not a slog. It's a really fun, energetic monster movie. I put Bone Tomahawk in first place because it blew my mind when I watched it. I didn't know what I was expecting. I, I knew it had a reputation and I'd been told go in knowing as little as possible. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Bone Tomahawk, I just fucked it up for you. <laughs> but I feel like these podcasts pretty explicitly begin. And honestly, some of the episodes I go through and you're like, we're going to watch this, this, and this. There are spoilers. And I'm like, nope. I need to, <laughs> need I need to watch to, it first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't do that, that's on you. Yeah, that's on you. We do say spoilers right out the gate. Um, I love the journey of the movie. I love that it is... It's not a horror western. It's not a western horror. It is both of those things, right? It's a horrific it's a western, western, and then it gets horror. And you're talking about sort of the stakes as we're, we're slowly, slowly getting closer. The thing is awful. 
you know something as awful is coming and you know with every step of this journey they're getting closer to something awful and as they're getting closer for me there was just i just felt this dread for the characters i realized i really like these guys <laughs> and there's no way all of them are going to live through this and i don't want any of them to die <laughs> and uh, i love that you know you know what a great storytelling piece was was having the husband with a broken leg because yeah. with that you like just you understand that they're not going to go in heroes uh, with guns blazing this guy is a setback and it can't end well with his broken leg and it's it does a very good job of telegraphing without maybe foreshadowing to our or i guess foreshadowing without maybe telegraphing uh, is a better way to put it the ending very i very solid yeah the quest is literally hobbled yeah and the person who's hobbled is the person who's most desperate to be moving fast. <laughs> if anything, I'm surprised they turned out as well as they did. Well, like I said, I would have lost money that Richard Jenkins was going to live through that movie. <laughs> I seriously <laughs> yeah. was just like, it was one of those things where I almost wanted to skip to the end just because like, I would never do it. That For me, if I'm watching a movie and I feel that inclination like that I need to skip to see what happens, yeah. I won't do it. But if I have that inclination, I means I'm into the movie and I'm liking the movie. And uh, instead of feeling bored during that journey in the middle of Bone Tomahawk, that's what I was feeling. I was just like, oh, no, you guys. Oh, no. Oh, no, you guys. Um, and like I said, uh, go ahead and watch Hateful Eight. I'm not, I'm not saying that Hateful Eight is a bad movie, but as far as the movies that Kurt, Ru- the westerns that Kurt Russell made last year, I think this is the better of the two. You want to know the funny thing is the... Before we went into this, I was kind of struggling with doing, and it was Devil's Rock and Crimson Peak. Oh, yeah? I was like, eh, Crimson Peak. And I'm like, Crimson Peak is like the right answer, quote-unquote. But I like Devil's Rock better, I and think, then I bumped it up. I think Devil's Rock knows what it is 100%. more than Crimson Peak uh, knows like, what it is. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be proud of making Crimson Peak, but like if I made Devil's Rock, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be like... I feel like the movie turned out perfectly. Uh, There's I think more maybe production value in any yeah. two shots of Crimson Peak than there are in the entirety of <laughs> Devil's Rock. But Devil's Rock knew that it was hot demon eats no- Nazis, whereas yeah. Crimson Peak seems to think it, it's basically a ghost movie, but it seems to be treating itself like this opulent, poised Oscar thing. Yeah. And uh, it kind of takes some of the some of the scares out of it. But I wouldn't steer enough someone away from it necessarily either. Yeah, no, that's funny. why it's in the middle of the list. It is funny that both of us put to me that both of us put the Devil's Rock ahead of Crimson Peak <laughs> because like I just thought I thought that was definitely going to be a Larry move. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're on the same page. Is there anything that you would like to say to the kids on the internet out there listening? Don't stop internetting. Don't you, stop you, internetting. You keep the world running. Um, I, I don't know. If anyone that listens to this, I'm glad that podcasts like this exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy being on it. I enjoy listening to it. I enjoy discovering new movies. And as a movie fanatic, there's always some that slip through the net. Yeah. Like I, I try and keep track of the movies that are going on, especially since like 2006. I've been pretty on top of it. But there's always something that slips through the net. Oh, yeah. And if this brought anything to you... Let it be Beowulf and Grendel. But honestly, yeah, thanks for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you go watch a new movie because of this. Don't internet too much, though, because you'll go blind.
that's it and that is all this episode is history let's say goodbye and put into the rearview mirror episode 85 of rank and review and if you think i or eric got this episode completely wrong you can let me know you just write me at rankandreview at gmail.com and say larry you're full of shit uh i would even welcome that negative feedback at this point uh, anything you guys have to say any ideas of themes for shows or just feedback is always welcome rankandreview at gmail.com r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com otherwise we'll see you every other wednesday for rank and review thanks you guys <laughs>